0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Back in the early 60s, when my mom was in college, the movie West Side Story won 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Musical. It's the classic love story of boy meets girl from two rival gangs. And in her final song, Maria sings this about Tony. I have a love, and it's all that I need, right or wrong, and he needs me too. I love him, we're one. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. Your love is your life. The lyrics mix love and ethics. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. Paul does the same thing in Romans twelve nine to 21. He combines the terminology of love with the terminology of ethics, right or wrong, good or evil, though Paul's message is quite the opposite of Maria's message. In West Side story, Maria claims that love removes ethics, removes categories of right and wrong. In Romans, Paul argues that genuine love is understood in terms of good and evil. The two messages start with different definitions of love. For Maria, love is this romantic feeling of attraction. Maria's love is the love of Romeo and Juliet. It's a love that can break boundaries, but can also end in senseless death. This is the love of modern music. It's a love that can soar high and just as quickly turn to hate. It's the love of Hollywood. It's the love of the sexual revolution. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. Your love is your life. The Bible is not against romantic love. God gave us the Song of Solomon. God gave us the command of Proverbs five eighteen to 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The Bible affirms romantic love and sexual expression of love in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible is not against romantic love. The Bible does, however, urge us to a deeper, lasting, more challenging love. When I was in college, I remember Josh McDowell telling us that love is an action. Love is a decision of the will. He was helping us renew our minds, helping us counter the pattern of this world. Love is not something that carries a husband and father uncontrollably into adultery. That's not God's love. It's a form of modern love. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. No, love is the decision of a man to value the good of his wife. To value the needs of his children, even above his own selfish passions. Love is the choice and the action to care about the needs of others, even if those needs are contrary to our own. Later, I heard from John Piper a different message. His message was different because his audience was different. He was not countering the wrong pattern of the world. He was countering a wrong pattern in the church. He challenged us to remember the emotional element of love, and he was targeting a cold, heartless Christianity that emphasized an ethic of emotionless duty that implied the more you dislike something, the more spiritual is that thing. Christianity is doing what you don't like to do. Piper said, no, we've been created to love the Lord our God with all our mind, yes, and all our strength, yes, and all our heart, yes, yes. God is working in us a deeper desire of love. Romantic love is not the only feeling of love. There's a love that truly cares and delights in the well being of another human being. The most natural expression of this love is the love of a mother for her child, a true delighting in the good for someone else. When we put McDowell's message together with Piper's message, we get a more integrated picture of love. Biblical love comes from a new heart and is performed as a decision of the will that leads. To concrete acts of love. It's heart, will, and strength. It is true that our heart is not always in it, but that's a struggle of the flesh. As we grow in Christ, we grow in the enjoyment of loving unconditionally. That's the direction we're headed in, loving with all our heart and our mind and our strength, God and neighbor. If our heart is not there yet, we can still put our faith in the Holy Spirit to empower us to choose to do the loving thing, as McDowell urges, and we can ask him to keep working in our heart to catch up, as Piper urges. Jesus gave us the ethic of love. After washing his disciples' feet, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He gave them a symbol of concrete service, foot washing, and then he gave them the command to put their love into action for each other. And the command is important enough to repeat. Two chapters later, Jesus says again, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. It's a message of sacrificial love. Give up your own interests for one another. Lay down your life. Not necessarily dying, but laying down the moments of your life to take time to serve someone else. In that context of John 15, Jesus taught that this kind of love only comes by drawing your life and your power from him as a branch draws nourishment from the vine. I mentioned in our last lesson that Paul always includes a section on love when he teaches about the body of Christ and the gifts of the Spirit. We don't want to make the same mistake as the Corinthians being high in gifts and low on love. We also don't want to fall into the wrong pattern on thinking about love. Paul's giving us here another scenario to which we need to apply the pattern of Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we respond to the grace of Jesus and present ourselves to God in Christian community, we need our minds renewed to better understand his call to love. Let's read the text, Romans 12, 9 to 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice how Paul frames this passage. The first sentence is not a complete sentence in Paul's Greek. It's simply the three words, the love unhypocritical. Paul then goes on to give exhortations in line with sincere or genuine love. If you want to pursue real Jesus kind of love, love without hypocrisy or without a mask, then you should be doing these kinds of things from a genuine heart. Paul then does something interesting after giving us the title, The Love Unhypocritical. He moves from the language of love to the language of right and wrong, good and bad. He writes, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul comes back to that language in the last verse too. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul puts our basic morality as Christian, our basic ethic or rule for behavior in this relational context. Do you want to know if you are a good Christian? Ask yourself, do I love people? Do I show that love in concrete ways? When you ask God, how then shall I live? He's saying love. Our basic ethic is love. Growth in Christ is revealed in acts of love. Paul is defining good and evil here according to how we treat other people. Now, in regard to the structure of the text, I see a three-part division. Following Douglas Moo, I've adopted David Black's structure of the Greek text. In part 1, verses 9-13, to Black describes a 2-3-2-3-2 chiastic structure. It's recognizable by the Greek style. I'll arrange my comments according to that pattern. Part two consists of three general exhortations. It's more straightforward. And part three ends with another chiasm, though one based on content rather than style. Each part has a slightly different group in mind that we're supposed to love. We could say that part one is comprised of exhortations to sincere love in the Christian community. That's verses 9 to 13. Part two is comprised of exhortations to sincere love in general. That's verses 14 to 16. And part three is comprised of exhortations to sincere love outside the Christian community. That's verses 17 to 21. So let's start with part one, exhortations to sincere love in the Christian community. Our first two exhortations here in verse nine, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, serve both as the beginning bookend of the whole passage. 9 to 21, and the first frame of this part 1, 9 to 13. I've said that good and evil are defined by love. To love is to do the good. To not love is to do evil. We can also say it the other way around. Love will cling to what is good. Love will abhor what is evil. This is where we disagree with Maria from West Side Story. Love does not blind a person to good and evil. Genuine love shrinks away from the pure selfishness of evil. And genuine love desires what is good for the one loved. After these two exhortations, we have a set of three exhortations beginning in verse 10. The first two are one another statements. That indicates for us that we're talking about the body of Christ, one another in the body of Christ. The first exhortation is, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The Greek word used here for love means love of brothers or love of sisters. As members of the body of Christ, we're to be devoted to one another as an extended family. And you don't always have to click with your extended family. You don't always have to like your extended family. You just have to love them. Family is family. And we have a special responsibility to the brothers and sisters in our local Christian community, similar to the special responsibility we have for family. In fact, Paul urges us to be devoted to one another. He's calling for serious action, serious consideration to be given to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The second exhortation here is also a one another statement. Give preference to one another in honor. Remember Paul's admonition for us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. This goes a step further. Not only should I not seek my own honor, But I should show honor to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of seeking opportunities of self-recognition, I should make effort to see that others get recognized. The style of Paul's Greek suggests that the first exhortation in verse 11 should complete this group of three. Do not lag behind in diligence. The ESV translates this as, do not be lazy in zeal. So in context, Paul's urging us to show acts of brotherly love to each other. And as we do that, we're not seeking honor for ourselves. We're looking for ways to show honor and recognition to others. In both of these things, we should not be lazy or lag behind. Acts of brotherly love take effort. Even when those acts come out of our spiritual giftedness, we have some motivation in us, we still have to put forth effort. And Paul has said, if you're gifted In teaching, teach. If you're gifted in service, serve. If we're moved to love through mercy or leadership or giving, these are ways that we can show love for the body, the Spirit's working in us, but we're going to have to take some effort to actually apply our gifts. And even in the use of our gifts, it's not a means of accruing honor for ourselves. It's a way of devotion, the using of gifts and talents for the good of others. And in this, we are not to lag behind. We are not to be lazy. Our zeal should move us towards acts of love. The exhortation here is not keep busy. The opposite of being lazy is not attending every possible church event or filling up every minute of downtime or being involved in every ministry. There's a better way. Diligence can happen by seeking out a place you can consistently give in we should be thinking this way. Is there a weekly role I can play in our small group? Are there certain people I can regularly seek out to encourage? Is there a ministry of mercy I can volunteer with once or twice a week? I need to meet my responsibilities at work. I need to meet my responsibility of love for my family. In addition to that, where is a place I can give in the body that may require some sacrifice but is not detrimental to my health or to my sanity or to my family? And that would be effective. It would be useful. It would, I can give in such a way that truly helps. That's not lagging behind in zeal when you find a place that you can fit in and you can give regular service to. Now, our two central exhortations come in the rest of verse 11. First, be fervent in spirit. And this literally means be set on fire in the spirit. Living the Christian life is not meant to be a boring affair. That's not how Paul sees it at all. Duty is not a bad word. Consistent duty without emotion is not a picture of the Christian life, not one that we see in the Bible. If our heart does not overflow with love for Jesus, something's wrong with our heart. If we do not kneel in awe as we contemplate the majesty of God, something's wrong with our heart if we do not yearn for the fame of God's name to be spread through the nations, something is wrong with our heart. And to be honest, we get that. Let's just say it. Something's wrong with our heart. We struggle to connect emotionally with the reality of our faith. Paul seems to be saying here, do not be satisfied with that. Ask the Lord to light a fire in your heart or to fan up the flames. Maybe that fire is, is going strong like it does in a romance phase of human relationship. Maybe that fire is a consistent glow that burns in the heart like it does in a healthy, intimate, ongoing human relationship. We can't live off the hives of romance all the time. I don't think that's what we should imagine for this fire burning in our heart. We need that slow burning fire that doesn't always shine bright, but when poked reveals an intense heat and a strong glow. However, you envision it, Paul exhorts us here to be fervent, to be on fire for Jesus. And he follows that up with the next exhortation serve the Lord, which seems like a pretty bland or general command after just exhorting us to be on fire. And maybe that's the intent. Maybe he's directing our zeal. Worship might help us to be on fire, or preaching might stir up our heart, but don't let the flame die out there. Direct that intensity towards acts of service. For God, we need to be stirred up to serve. Worship that moves us emotionally is not intended to leave us there. We might fall into the danger of thinking our main spiritual service of worship is an emotional experience. There is an intensity and in, there is an intensity in the heart meant to move us to action in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to God. If zeal for God does not lead to loving service, Worship can become a selfish end in itself. Love for God is not meant to be kept inside, but to rise up and spill over and be a blessing. Now the set of three exhortations in verse 12 connect with the working of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Just as the fire of the Spirit moves us to acts of loving service, the Spirit provides the internal power we need to rejoice in hope, to persevere in tribulation to be devoted in prayer. We see that work of the Spirit connected to hope and tribulation and prayer back at the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8 where Paul affirmed the work of the Spirit in each believer, pouring out God's love into our hearts and witnessing with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of the King. That's what lights our heart on fire when we see God, when we love God, when we know that we are His. And specifically in chapter 8, 18 to 27, You can see Paul moving us from the theme of tribulation to hope to prayer. Just as he mentions here, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer. He's challenging the Romans to keep it up. Moving to our last two exhortations in verse 13, Paul gets very, very practical. What does sincere love look like in the body of Christ? What does it look like to be devoted to one another in brotherly love? Here are two things. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And practice hospitality. I imagine you have people in your mind who are good at doing this. I can immediately think of models of generosity. Christians who give their time and effort to make sure those in need are cared for. And three or four couples also come to mind when I think about hospitality. They're Christians who invite people into their homes seemingly effortlessly. You know, I don't know how much effort goes in, but when you're there, you don't notice. They invite you in and they make you feel welcome, known, included. And what a blessing these people are to the Christian community. I'm not one of them. You know, I can't do this to the same degree they do it with the same level of spiritual blessing. It's not my spiritual gift. But I try to learn from them so that I can offer hospitality in a pleasing way when God calls me to do it. We all are given opportunities to show hospitality. Next, we move on to part two, and this is verses 14 to 16. And here we're moving from exhortations of love in the body to general exhortations of sincere love, just love to in the body or outside of the body. The first is classic Jesus, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Hopefully, this is coming from outside the body if you're being persecuted, and it can be in big ways or small ways. How naturally do words of blessing come out of your mouth the moment you're cut off in traffic or treated rudely by the person behind the counter or put down by your boss or a professor. When someone looks down on you because of what you believe in or because of your moral stance, is your first response to utter words a blessing from the heart? Of course it isn't. We have a heart problem. Our response is not to bless the offender, but to curse the offender. Even if we just mutter it under our breath, it's not nice thoughts. Jesus commands another way. Sincere love to someone who annoys you, or worse, who seeks your harm, requires seeking their good. Sincere love seeks their good, their blessing, even when your sinful heart desires for them to be cursed. By faith, speak a sincere blessing. And if you can't control your voice, don't do it. Speaking a Christian blessing in a rude, judgmental, negative way Doesn't count. I just want you to be blessed. That's, that doesn't get it. If you can't control your voice, then keep your mouth closed and speak a blessing in your heart. By faith, in prayer to God, pray for the person who's hurt you or the person who's persecuted you or the person who's put you down. And you don't pray for vengeance as much as you want vengeance. You pray for their good. You offer blessing, not curse. Next, we have rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. My wife is my model for this exhortation. When Brenda hears good news for someone else, you know, they won a free cruise or they were selected for a special honor, she jumps up and down with joy for them. It's just, it's natural. I, on the other hand, immediately think, why can't that ever happen to me? Why can't I win the free cruise? Brenda models rejoicing with those who rejoice. She also models for me the other side of this exhortation, She sincerely weeps with those who weep. And this is empathy. and It's an important component of genuine love. It is stepping outside our own circumstances and emotional state to empathize with the reality of someone else's circumstances and emotional state. Verse 16 more clearly brings us back into the Christian community with another one another statement, urging us to equality in our love. The previous exhortation urged us to share a common heart, not that we always feel the same thing, but that we recognize what others are going through and show love by entering into their emotional circumstances. Here Paul shifts to the mind, be of the same mind. It could mean that we share a common understanding of the gospel, but that's not the context. Paul seems to be saying that we give each person equal regard in our thinking. We accept each one in the body, as created uniquely in the image of God, equally valued by God. To really do this, we have to go further. We have to recognize and reject our own prejudices, because we are prejudiced. Whether it's based on race, or poverty, or education, or social ability, or gender, or work success, we create value judgments in our minds. Don't do that, says Paul. Be of the same mind one of another. Recognize what truly matters. He or she is created in the image of God, loved by Jesus, born again, growing in character. Second, recognize the value of variety. There are different types of intelligence. People are good at all manner of different kinds of things. There are different personality types. There are different giftings, their different life experiences. There's so much variety that we should seek to enjoy and value the giftedness and the talents and the perspectives of other people in the body. We should also recognize that some have done much more for God with the little they have been given in life than the little done by those who have been given much. I don't say that to create a new kind of comparison, but we need to lean towards considering others with sober judgment. Remove your prejudices. Share the mindset that we are equally valued by God. Which of God's precious children is too lowly to associate with? Now we're ready to move into part three, verses 17 to 21. Here Paul exhorts us to sincere love outside the Christian community. Let's remind ourselves of the whole text. These are verses 17 to 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible so far, it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals On his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The beginning and ending of this part use the good and evil language. So we start in verse 17 with never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We end in verse 21 with do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. In context, evil refers to hurtful actions done to you by another human being. First, Paul tells us what not to do. Do not pay back evil. To whom should we not pay back evil? You should not pay back evil to anyone. Now, that's a hard command to swallow and certainly does not line up with the stories we love to tell and the stories we like to watch. We love the stories where the man or the woman or the child gets back at the evil person who has belittled them or harmed them. We rejoice inside when they come back with a clever comment, a quick punch, um, a smart plan. We love justice, especially when the weak overcome the strong. There's something good in that, but there can also be something wrong, too. Our minds are conformed to the pattern in this world. If we truly want to do the good, pleasing, acceptable will of God, then we need our minds renewed on this point. He is calling us to a higher pattern. What is our general approach to people in society outside the body of Christ? We start with the second half of verse 17. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The Christian stance towards secular society is not one of absolute good versus absolute evil. We're called to acknowledge the natural morality that's present in our society. There are things that all people, or at least a large group of people, recognize as good. Not everybody is trying to do it, but they recognize it. And we can find common ground in caring for the poor, helping out our neighbors, living with financial integrity, being honest, being considerate. There is a general recognition of right and wrong in society that allows us to connect with other people. In addition to recognizing common good and common evil, we make an effort to be at peace with all men so long as it depends on us. If our neighbor complains that our Christmas lights are shining in his bedroom window all night, we buy a timer to make them go off. If our dog is barking through the night, we do something about our dog. If our neighbor's tree falls in our yard, we can cut it up and give him the firewood. Granted, if it falls on our car, living together in peace is going to be more difficult, but as a starting principle, if it isn't our reasonable power to put in some effort to live at peace with the people around us, God says, do that. Do not intentionally make yourself smellier than you have to be. What if someone wrongs you? That moves us to the central point of the chiasm in verse 19. Never take your own revenge. That's pretty absolute. The Christian is not permitted to take revenge, period. And we can discuss that, but the end answer is going to be, no, you're not allowed to take revenge. And this is a point of faith. We're told, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge here applies to personally getting back at the one who has wronged you. If the tree falls on your car and you want your neighbor to pay for it, that's fair. If he refuses, you can take him to court. God has provided means in society by which we can seek justice. And that's coming up in chapter 13. We'll talk more about that. People need to be held responsible for their actions. A rape victim may choose to forgive her attacker as an act of supernatural faith in Jesus. That does not mean she should argue against him going to jail. He can go to jail forgiven. Punishment is not wrong. Punishment is is often in line with scripture, but you don't take it into your own hands. To take the lesser example, if the neighbor refuses to pay for the damage to your car caused by his tree and is somehow able to wiggle out of responsibility through our deficient human justice system, you are not allowed to steal his car or to set it on fire. You don't even get to pour manure into his back seat. Now, that's a normal desire, I think. It's my normal desire. Mostly, it's a sinful desire. Though there may be some righteous anger mixed in there somewhere. I'm not sure. You're not being told here that you cannot seek recourse according to the system provided by your society. You are being told that if that system fails, you cannot, as a Christian, seek your own form of justice. By faith, you recognize the fallibility of human justice and recognize the reality of God's justice. No one escapes the courtroom of God's justice. We have this over the atheist. While we all share a desire for justice, all normal people do, we do not depend on the fallible justice of this world. We believe that justice will ultimately and eternally be satisfied by our good, impartial, all-seeing, holy God. Paul moves on to an odd statement in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. We already heard the echoes of Jesus' Sermon on the mountain, and Paul's command to bless and not curse those who persecute you. This exhortation reminds us of Jesus' command to turn the other cheek or to go the extra mile. It's a direct command to love your enemy. Give him food. Give him drink. But what about the conclusion, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head? Paul's quoting Proverbs twenty five twenty one to 22, and neither Proverbs or Paul give us much to go on by way of context. The metaphor of heaping burning coals on your enemy's head is lost on us. We don't even have any clear examples from Greek or Hebrew to draw from. And some have suggested that pouring coals on your enemy's head indicates that if our good acts do not turn them, then their punishment will be all the more severe. And that's not completely unbiblical, but it doesn't fit well here with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, already alluded to, nor does it fit with what Paul has said so far. We're encouraged to leave room for God's wrath. We are not encouraged to do good in order to increase wrath. The theme here is love without hypocrisy. The verse should fit with that theme. How does this show sincere love? A suggestion I've heard preached is that coals on the head alludes to the practice of carrying a jar on the head with coals for lighting a fire. So in that sense, the coals are a positive, like food or drink. There are two problems with this suggestion. One, we don't have any ancient examples of a positive metaphor about carrying coals on the head. Two, it's not clear what the point would be. It seems the same as saying, be nice to your enemy, for in so doing, you will be doing something nice for your enemy. And that's not really helpful. A third suggestion, and a a better one, is that heaping burning coals on the head of your enemy is a metaphor for causing shame. Now, if causing shame is intended as an act of revenge, you're trying to get back at your enemy by making him feel bad, then the metaphor would not fit the context so well either. That would be like trying to increase his wrath. It's doing something good in order to cause bad to your enemy. But if causing shame is intended to bring your enemy to a recognition of his own wicked behavior, so to bring him to repentance and a right relationship with God and other people, then the metaphor fits the context. We do not bless our enemy with any guarantee of bringing him to repentance, but it's a possibility. This suggestion has the problem that it's got little support from ancient writings, but the positive that it fits pretty well the context. In the chiastic structure, this verse parallels the command, respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, be at peace with all men. And parallel structures often take a point and push it further. That's what's happening here. The further thought is that not only do we respect what is right for all, but we act in that way even to our enemies, which is unexpected. And just as the previous desire with all men was that we might have peace, So also, doing good to our enemy can have the desired effect of bringing peace. We can only do what we can do. We can't achieve peace if the other party refuses to admit wrongdoing and refuses reconciliation. But we can choose to bless our enemy. We can treat him as a human being who has needs. We can help with those basic needs. And in so doing, if we somehow move him to shame, And that leads to repentance. Then we brought about peace. Paul started this section by telling us what we're not to do. We are not to pay back evil for evil to anyone. He ends in verse 21 by telling us what we are to do. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to overcome evil with good. The means do not justify the ends. We are to seek the good, and we are to seek to accomplish the good through good. If we seek to accomplish good through evil, then we lose. We are at that point being overcome ourselves by evil. And this is a natural pattern in the world. It's quite normal for the victim of evil to become the perpetrator of evil. When hurt, we lash out, we strike back. We even do to others exactly as what was done to us. Not only does our wicked response increase the damage to ourselves, compounding the consequences of sin done to us with sin done by us, but it also perpetuates a cycle of retribution. If we return evil with evil, it will be returned back on us again. And then we return it again, and then it comes back again. In personal relationship, for peace to be accomplished, someone must choose to break the cycle to be the peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The first frame in the chiasm of part one served double duty, creating also the beginning bookend of the whole passage. That was, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So also here in verse 21, we have the final frame of part three and the ending bookend to the whole passage. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We overcome evil with good by pursuing the kind of radical, genuine love that Jesus taught and Jesus modeled. Paul envisions the body of Christ building itself up in love. Jesus envisions a watching world, and he tells us, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, one for another. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.